So, all right, so I have a lunch appointment at 1230 downtown, which is only three minutes from my house, but I do have to change out of this tank top before. So as long as we're done by 10 after yeah, 12, is that cool? Oh, dude, we'll, be, we'll definitely be done before then. Okay. I'm just disappointed um, to hear you're not wearing your tank top to lunch, that's all. Well, I'm just going to change it out for a black one. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I would wear the one you're wearing right now if, uh, if I had one, but I don't. <laughs> Hey, dude, there's very, 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 very few opportunities to wear a tank top living in Chicago. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> I doubt today is one of those opportunities. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind, of reg- I'm kind of regretting this decision here. Welcome back to the Slowdown Podcast. My name's Tony. Got Russ with me here today. What's up? What's up? We got a special podcast for you guys today. Um, We got an interview. Uh, We're going to get to introducing uh, that person here in a second. But just a reminder, if you were with us last week, we were talking about Reclaim 2 and continuing our discussion. And if you remember from that conversation, we talked about the mission of Jesus was to die. It wasn't to come to make the world straighten up and fly right. It wasn't to come to make enough disciples who would then make enough disciples who would then make enough disciples to change the world. It wasn't to come and fix us. It wasn't to come and give us some good theology. His mission was to come and die. And we couldn't think of a better person to come and talk about some of the implications of this finished work, of this mission, of this cross, then your friend, Russ, you want to introduce him? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. So some of you guys that are listening in will be familiar with a guy by the name of Tolian Chavijan, our guest here with us today. Uh, Tolian's a friend who now lives here in Fort Myers. Uh, We've been able to spend some time together over the last year. Welcome, brother. What's up, Tolian? Hey, guys, thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. Good to have you, man. Um, Some of you also, just because our heart is definitely reaching people who are outside and uninterested in the church might not be familiar with this story. So instead of me, you know, jumping in here and giving everything away, I'm just going to turn it over to Tolian. Tolian, share with this man just uh, who you are, what you've seen God doing through your life and, and just your journey of faith in this finished work of Jesus, and what that looks like. Yeah. Well, gosh, I don't know where to begin. Let's see. I was born into a Christian family, grew up in church, uh, was born really into Christian royalty. My mom is the oldest daughter of the famous evangelist Billy Graham. He's, he, well, he's dead now, but when he was alive, he was my grandfather. We called him Daddy Bill. So I really had the privileges of every good thing Christianity had to offer delivered to me from the time I came into this world. Mm. Uh, grew up going to good churches, grew up going to Christian schools, uh, you know, all of that stuff. And as the middle of seven children, uh, growing up in a home that was fun and loving and hospitable, in fact, the flavor of Christianity that was expressed in my home growing up was not oppressive or legalistic. It was very uh, joyful. 
Uh, it was appropriately sarcastic. Uh, it was fun. <laughs> um, you know, it was just, I had a great upbringing, uh, but I couldn't really figure out where I fit inside the home. I'm the middle child and I never really knew if I was the youngest of the older three or the oldest of the younger three. And uh, when you are 14, 15, 16 years old and you're desperately trying to find yourself and desperately looking to belong somewhere and you don't know how to figure that stuff out inside the home, you make some pretty stupid choices as it pertains to life outside the home. And so I just began running away from everything I had grown up with and running away from God and all of that stuff. Uh, and I lived riotously in my hometown of Fort Lauderdale for about six or seven years, really went off the deep end, typical prodigal son story going off into the far country and all of that stuff. But what was interesting to me is that even though I grew up in church and Christian schools and Christian home, for some reason, even though this was not explicitly stated, what was implied at the very least was that Christianity was for good people. Mm. And I knew mm. I wasn't good. Mm. And therefore, Christianity must not be for me. And so I just, I bailed on the whole thing. And a series of circumstances, it wasn't one particular thing or one particular one of realizing that there has to be more to life than this. There has to be more to what this world is telling me. And so I, uh, I came back to God. I came back to what I had always known. Um, God really rescued me. I often say that the hound death to life. And uh, whether God saved me then or when I was younger, I have no clue. Uh, I just know that my life changed pretty dramatically when I was 21 years old. And, wow. um, and I, as much passion as I had, as much passion as I had sort of living for the things of this world, I became equally passionate about pursuing the things of God. And so I immediately went to college. Uh, I got married at 21, started college. Um, I graduated in three and a half years with a degree in philosophy, uh, seminary and uh, graduated in three years with a master's degree in divinity. I worked on the staff of a couple of churches, uh, and I graduated from seminary and immediately went on staff at a large church in Tennessee. I was there for two years before moving back home to my hometown in Fort Lauderdale to start a church, uh, and that's when my sort of Christian career really took off. And I started preaching and traveling and writing books in 2009. The church that I had planted merged with a much larger, more famous church in Fort Lauderdale. Um, and all of that catapulted my career, so to speak, my professional yeah. ministry career uh, in a way that it had not before. I had written two books before that. I had you know, done traveling and speaking, but this really catapulted me. And mm. within you know, a few years, I had achieved, uh, you know, celebrity pastor status, which is about the silliest term I've ever heard in my life. Um, nevertheless, uh, however one wants to define a celebrity pastor, I was one. I was uh, writing a book a year. I was traveling around the country, speaking at conferences, churches, and large events. I was on TV every week around the world. I was on the radio every day. Um, I mean, according to the world standards, I really had 
at it all. And then in early, uh, mid-2015, it all came crashing down. Hmm. Um, I, uh, my first marriage uh, was struggling, and rather than giving it the attention that it needed, um, I, it ended up in divorce in part because I was unfaithful to my first wife and therefore deserved to lose both the ministry and the marriage that God had given me. And because I was a public figure, it played out very publicly. My worst moment in life became my most famous moment in life. Uh, I was featured prominently on the cover of the National Enquirer, which, you know, that's when you really know your life is tanked and hit rock bottom when you make it on the cover of the National Enquirer. But I mean, it was literally, it was, my infidelity was reported everywhere. I mean, not just in Christian media, it was, I mean, USA Magazine, everything, everything. And I just wanted to crawl into a hole and die. I Mm. broke my, I broke my life. I broke my family. I broke uh, the trust of people who loved me and looked to me as their leader. I mean, I really tanked my life in so many ways. And that was about close to four years ago. And for the first year or so, I was doing everything I could to salvage what I had lost. I was doing everything I could to salvage what I had lost professionally. I was doing everything I could to salvage what I had lost personally. I mean, I was, you know, manipulating the narrative, not being truthful with the people in my life. Uh, I was doing everything I could to solicit uh, sympathy and empathy from people by playing the victim. I was telling half truths at best. And uh, after it became clear that God was not going to allow me to salvage anything that I had lost, and he completely shut it down. Hmm. I finally sat still long enough and shut up long enough for God to begin the deconstructing work in me that he wanted to do. And he did. I mean, it was very painful. During that season, I met my second wife, Stacy. We've been married now for two and a half years. Uh, She was a huge catalyst in my healing. Uh, A couple of people, Paul Zoll, who's a retired Episcopalian priest and like a father figure to me, uh, he's like my Yoda. He, he, really we're fans. Wants- yes. And you should be, I am too. Yeah, man. Um, it's impossible to know who your real friends are when you're at the top of your game, mm. uh, and you have so much to offer, but when you're at the bottom and you have nothing to offer, but leprosy and liability to people, you discover pretty quickly who your friends are. And Paul's all was one of those people as everyone else was sort of running wow. away Amen. from me. Paul's all was running toward me. Um, and he really, he wrote a book called grace and practice and he lived it out. I mean, in, in the most tangible ways with me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I had the help of a couple of people like that, the help of my wife, Stacy, uh, who really, uh, stuck with me and began to breathe life back into me because of the way they unconditionally loved me. And, uh, God sat me on the sidelines for, you know, a solid year and a half, close to two years, where I had nothing to do except really reflect, get the help that I needed. Uh, God was taking me through spiritual, emotional, and mental detox and rehab, which sucked. I mean, it was one of the most loneliest, uh, depressing, despairing seasons of my life. In fact, it was, but it was so absolutely necessary for God to uh, just sort of peel back the layers in my life and help me come to terms with who I was and what had happened and what I had become and why and 
all of that stuff. And uh, one of the things that Paul's all said to me during that very painful season of loss and guilt and shame and regret, I mean, literally, I, I lost everything that had been a significant part of my life for the first 42 years I was alive overnight. I mean, family broken, friends gone, financial stability gone, reputation gone, job gone, credibility gone. Uh, I mean, you name it, it was gone, gone. Mm. And, wow. uh, and I, it, 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 that loss ushered in so much more than just grief and pain and regret. It did usher in those things, but it ushered in something much deeper than that. It ushered in a severe identity crisis for me because I didn't realize it at the time, but I had come to depend so much on the, the people that I knew the work that I was doing, the accomplishments that I had achieved, uh, my reputation, my success, all of those things I had come to depend on to make me feel like I mattered, to invest my life with significance. And when those things were gone, uh, because I had so deeply attached my identity to those things, when those things were gone, I, I did not know who I was anymore. And so I felt like a 15-year-old teenage boy looking under every rock and behind every tree trying to find himself, except I was 42 years old and completely, utterly lost. And so um, so one of the things when I was at my worst that Paul Zoll said to me that completely turned the tide for me, at least it began to turn the tide for me, he said, the purpose behind the suffering you are going through is to kick you into new freedoms from false definitions of who you are. Hmm. And he understood very astutely that the reason I was undergoing such a deep level of despair and depression was not simply because I had lost these things and I had, in a sense, lost my life, but it's because I had so deeply attached my identity to those things that I had lost. And therefore, I was enslaved to those things without even realizing Um and so as time went on and God continued his surgical work, his deconstructing work, uh, he began slowly but surely breathing new life into me. And all it did really was not only radically increase my level of self-awareness. I mean, I understand not just my sin, uh, but the sinful human condition in a way now that I never understood before. I understand something about God's grace and unconditional love and outrageous mercy and a never-ending forgiveness that I did not know before all of this happened. In my, in my case, and I think this is true for lots of people, uh, success is far more dangerous than failure, way more dangerous than failure. Failure taught me things that success never did. Success made me cocky, for instance, yeah. confident in my own abilities. Uh, failure gave me a much needed humility. Uh, it made me trust God more. It made me depend on God more. It made me more empathetic to sinners and people who are guilty, uh, people who have crashed and burned and bottomed out. Um, it actually made me more pastoral than I ever was when I was a pastor, which is ironic. Yeah. And so I have not wavered from the message that I was writing about or preaching before my crash and burn happened. Right. I just have a much deeper understanding of it now, and it's coming from a more profound, well, how did this happen? And that's a long answer 
to a short question, but uh, one of the short ways that I try to answer that question is um, a slow and subtle shift began to take place that I was completely unaware of. And it came on like the slow creep of the tide rather than a sudden tidal wave. But it was the shift from locating my identity in the message that I was preaching to locating my identity in my success as a messenger of the message. Yeah. And I think that oftentimes happens to a lot of ambitious church leaders and a lot of ambitious uh, Christian leaders and pastors and that sort of thing. Um, it, in theological terms, we call it justification by works. We're trying to justify mm -hmm. our existence and validate our existence by what we do and by who we can become and by what other people think of us and all of that, that is just as rampant and prevalent inside the church as it is outside of the church. Right. Uh, and it was certainly true in my own life. So um, that's sort of my story in a nutshell. And you guys feel free to ask me whatever questions you want about that. Man, first of all, I just want to say thank you for just being able to, to share that. Um, I mean, to confess some pretty, pretty deep, um, you know, deep brokenness in your heart and who you were and how you were approaching those things. Um, so I'm encouraged by your honesty. And I thank God, not for your suffering and for those seasons of depression, but the things that he's, he's taught you. So I'm just, I'm just encouraged, man, by the work of God in, in your life. Well, thank you. Thank you. I am too, by the way. I really feel alive and free in a way that uh, I have never before. I tell people all the time, there is so much about my old life that I miss, but I don't miss the old me at yeah, all. Sure. Um, that makes sense. And, and so I, you know, I mean, there's just, I still deal with the fallout and the horizontal consequences of my sin. And that will, that will follow me all the days of my life. Uh, but to understand the sweetness of God's provision and his grace and his love and his smile and his pleasure uh, in and through uh, the horizontal consequences that I've experienced is something very, very uh, sweet and savory to me. Yeah, man. I'm just, you know, I'm hearing your story, hearing what you've been through. And like Tony said, really encouraged by the, just the vulnerability, right? The, mm. the, the transparency, the honesty that you bring to this conversation. And the, a phrase that you just used in terms of listen, there's some things that I've done in the past and they by you know, by all means, right. There's some horizontal consequence to that. Mm -hmm. And you have felt that in the past, right. In a major way. And still, even today, as you follow Jesus, yep. continue to share this message of grace with other people and what God has done in your life and is doing even today. Um, what are your thoughts about the vertical consequence? Yeah, that was taken care of 2000 years ago. Thank God. Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was counseling a guy yesterday who's a pastor and going through a very difficult season in life, and his concern was that the mistakes of that he has made and is currently making are going to change the way God feels about him. Hmm. Hmm. And I said, let me tell you something: the the sins of your past, the sins of your present, and the sins of your future will inevitably have horizontal consequences. Um, I mean, they just will. Uh, we are broken people living in a broken world with other broken people. Life is hard. Pain is real. Uh, mm -hmm. Things really heavy. And that's unavoidable. But make no mistake about it. Because of what Jesus has done for train wrecks like us, 
Yeah. Nothing, nothing we do or don't do will ever change God's disposition toward us, ever. And I think that is a massive misunderstanding both inside and outside the church with regard to who God is, that God loves us when we're being good and he's just pissed when we're being bad. And, you know, he's smiling at us when we're being good, however one wants to define that. Uh, and he's frowning yeah. on us when we're being bad, however one wants to define that. And it's such good news to me and to anybody else out there who is keenly aware of their own guilt and shame and sin, uh, that because of what Jesus has done for sinners, God's disposition toward us never changes, that he loves us, not based on what we do or don't do, but based entirely and exclusively on what Jesus has done for us. And so I make a distinction between vertical condemnation and horizontal consequences. And That's oftentimes, good. That's good. When, and oftentimes when we are experiencing horizontal consequences, we assume that those are sort of forces of vertical condemnation. And uh, I think it's been helpful for me as I press on through the rough terrain of my life and the consequences, like I said, that will follow me uh, right. until the day that I die, to realize that what I'm experiencing in terms of the hardness of my life and the difficulty of enduring the consequences has nothing to do with how God feels about me. And because I am aware of the fact that God is delighted in me because of what his son has done for me, that actually empowers me and gives me the perspective I need to endure the horizontal consequences that I have to endure mm. without despair. And, without, yeah, you know, so anyway, that's, that's been helpful for me. No, so good, man. So, so good. good. That's why I even asked the question, you know, it's yeah. just, because there's definitely a number of listeners, right, that, that hear, hear stories like this, and then there's something in us that can't help but start to tie, right, the horizontal consequences of, of life to this, as, you, as you've, you know, put this vertical condemnation, right? Right. That right. all these things are happening because I didn't do A, B, and C, and right. you know, so now God's going to have to do one, two, three. Right. But right. if I can just get this thing correct, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, then the conditionality of who God is and all the promises that he will or will, will, will provide or will withhold, right? Yeah, right. All start to, start to unpack. And then I think when we press into the scriptures, right, we find a very different story. Yeah. We find a very different God. Very different God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we do. And I mean, I literally, I, I call Romans 8 the great eight. Because, uh, you're pro you know, like, like chapters in the Bible, you're probably not, you're probably not supposed to have favorite children, just like you're not supposed to have favorite chapters in the Bible. Well, I don't have a favorite child, but I do have a favorite chapter in the Bible. And Romans 8 is just mind-blowing to me, man, mind-blowing, because it begins with this radical idea that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which people sort of read right past. I'm like, no, do you understand the magnitude of that? Not just theologically, but existentially. Um, and then when you get to the end of Romans 8, Paul says, nothing can separate you from God's love. There's nothing on earth and there is nothing in heaven that can separate you from God's love because God's love for you does not in any way, shape or form depend on what you do or don't do or who you can become or who you have failed to be. It has everything to do with what Jesus outside of you has done for you objectively. 
And yep. uh, that, is that. Just, it is just that's that's why the gospel is good news, because as I talk to people outside the church and I talk to a lot of them, it, to those who reject Christianity, they're not rejecting what I just said. They right. love that idea. They love yeah. I mean, what 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 guilty human being doesn't uh, gravitate toward the idea of unconditional love and forgiveness and those sorts of things? I mean, that is a. Yeah. That is a natural human longing. What they're rejecting is some moralistic, do good, try harder, be better version of the Christian faith that they right. heard somewhere along the way. And that God is this cosmic killjoy who's keeping score somewhere up in the heavens. And, um, you know, he exists to make your life miserable because he delights to punish you when you're bad. That's what they're rejecting for the most right. part. I fully agree with you, man. It's, it's, it's definitely not right. It's not this declaration of a God right, two thousand years ago who entered the story, right, right, and lived right. this life that we couldn't live, right, and then died right. this death that we deserve to die, so that right. He could raise us to new life in Himself, right. Set a feast before right. us and say, "At my table, we dine." Right. Amen. Yeah. But that's that's not the story that people are rejecting. And I guess there's something in the human condition, because even as I hear your story, I think about my story, other people as well. There's something about us that wants to, to tie our identity to performance and progress. Yeah. And then there's some reason yeah. why in tying our identity the, to the performance and progress that we have in this life or lack thereof, it somehow enables us to miss the, the whole mission of the Messiah. Yeah. Right? It you wonder if that's why, you know, 2,000 years ago, you got John questioning, you know what I mean, in jail going, are you really the Messiah? Right. Like, because all these things that I thought you were going to do and, and, and just get Rome out of the way and put us in our, you know, our prominent place and yeah. you know, you're basically make the world straighten up and fly right. None of these things are happening. Yeah. But the reality is, if all he did was to come and teach us how to get it together yeah. and everything you just shared about your story, yeah. every single piece of it right. Right, ends, yeah. you bombed, yeah. you're done. Right. Right. Maybe you have enough time to get it together. Right. Or you can just trust in the finished work of Jesus from long ago. Right. And the fact that yep. you stand righteous in him right now today, period. Yeah. yeah. And, and here's, that move here's, forward. Well, and here's the, here's the radical kicker to that, that our, our level of faith does not in any way determine God's faithfulness toward us. In other words, the, right. great, yep. the great hymn says, great is thy faithfulness, not great is my faithfulness. And so the weakness of my faith does not in any way take away from uh, the strength of God's promises. And so I, you know, I, I wrote this, um, I wrote this in my book, One Way Love, uh, and it, I just pulled it up because I thought it's apropos for this conversation, but I wrote, grace is a gift, pure and simple. We might insist on trying to pay, but the balance has been settled. Of course, mm. even if we're able to accept one-way love when it comes our way, we have trouble when it reaches other people, especially those who have done us wrong. Grace offends our sense of justice by being both implausible and unfair. We are uncomfortable because grace turns the tables on us, relieving us yeah. of our precious sense of control. It tears up the time card we were counting on to be assured of that nice big paycheck on Friday. It forces us to rely on the goodness of another, and that is simply terrifying. However much we hate having to get up and go to the salt mines every day, we distrust the thought of completely 
resting in the promised generosity of God even more. So we try to domesticate the message of one-way love. After all, who could trust in or believe something so radically unbelievable? Mm. Boom. There it is, man. Loving that. There it is, right? And that's, that's the struggle. I mean, it just seems so unfair. I mean, I, I've discovered in this process of what I've gone through, I've learned a lot about the church, both the best parts and the worst parts of the church and the Christian community. Um, but one of the things I've discovered is that the Christian community tends to have uh, a lot of sympathy for the person who is suffering at the hands of another. They have zero compassion for the person who is suffering because of what they've done to themselves and others. Right. So, uh, if is sad is, but true, is the gospel of God's forgiveness offered to Harvey Weinstein as much as it is to every single one of his victims? Yeah. And the answer is yes. And that doesn't sit well with me or anybody else. That's right. just. That seems to be a complete affront on God's justice. And if justice is what we're after, we better be very, very careful because none of us can stay. Yeah, you're going to have to off the whole world, man, because everybody's right. eventually going to let you down. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then you exactly. got to turn it on yourself because you, right. you yourself aren't going to meet the demands. Right, that you know, that's exactly right. right. So just, just to wrap up here, because I know you got to go, but um, I think – one of the beautiful things that I'm pulling from your story is something that you mentioned a while back, which I think has like a ton of implications for, especially people who are listening to listening into our podcast as we're really just diving in on this idea that we're God's missionary people in the world to take this good news to people who are not going to come and walk into churches and hear it from pulpits. Um, and so to share this good news in the context of friendships and relationships and common spaces and common places, um, and the powerful piece of your story was the one relationship in the midst when everybody in the world was giving you what you do deserve. Yep. The one relationship that had a, just a, a little glimmer, right? A, a, a reminder, mm-hmm. an arrow pointing to this one-way love. And that was uh, Dr. Zoll in your life. And so such an encouragement to our people who are really walking alongside others and we, yeah, we tell people all the time, like, you know, mission in a post-Christian age, post-church age, you got to play the long game. This isn't a, you know, this, this, it's, it's going to take a while um, to not have expectations, to trust massively in the work of God and not our ability to say it right or get it right or fix them. Can you speak really, really quick, quickly to just the power of relationships that smell and and feel and and tangibly just remind you of good news it it's it's absolutely life-giving i mean it is absolutely life-giving and the flip side of that is relationships that uh that have an aroma of conditionality and judgment Hmm. uh, are absolutely life-taking i mean i have over the course of the last four years felt both the life sucked out of me as a result of relationships that i thought were real and I've also had life breathed into me mm-hmm. as a result of relationships that proved to be very real. And, um, you know, God, God uses people uh, regularly to remind us of how he loves. And it's very, very rare to find those people or for those people to find you who will love you for better or and for worse. 
and um, and that's extremely rare. But for me, it was life giving. Both Paul and my wife Stacy, just life giving. Both of those people should have, could have, and would have been thoroughly uh, justified in bailing on numerous occasions from mm. me because I was just spinning out of control. Uh, and crashing and burning in ways that were actually hurting them as much as hurting myself. Um, and they just, they stuck with it. And that's one thing that I would say that I've learned. And I know it sounds maybe overly simplistic, but um, do not write people off hmm. because you just never know what God is doing in their lives and where he's taking them. And oftentimes people will get worse before they get better and um, and writing people off too quickly, um, mm -hmm. and assuming that redemption can't happen, uh, is just it. It's it's a terrible anti-Christian impulse. Uh, thankfully, God never writes us off. Uh, oftentimes, we are very impatient with people, and um, and we give up too quickly. And I'm just so. I'm saddened by the fact that those people seem to be few and far between, but I'm also very grateful for the fact that God brought some of them, uh, you know, into my life. So I think in terms of the power of relationships that are real, uh, what I call non-blinking friendships, uh, you know, friendships like that. where you can tell me the worst thing you can possibly tell me about yourself, and I'm just not going to blink. I mean, I'm not going to blink and I'm not going to bail. Uh, I would have I probably said something like that before all this happened. But I look back over the course of my life and there were numerous times where my uh, career was being somewhat threatened by the fact that someone close to me was really tanking. And to preserve myself and to preserve my career, I backed away from that person. Mm. Um, and so I can now say... Uh, that non-blinking friendships where people don't fail no matter how bad it gets uh, is a rare commodity in today's world. And when you can find it and when God brings it to you, uh, cherish it with everything you've got. Love it, man. We'll let that be a period on this. For sure, Unless man. you had something else, Russ. No, no. I think, uh, I think we've definitely covered it well. Hmm. I think you've, you've definitely uh, – shed some 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 beautiful light on trusting in the finished work of jesus on your behalf from long ago yep god's justice right has been met that's right that's exactly and he right. has dealt with your sin my sin and everyone's sin those yeah. that you've committed those that have been committed against you um yeah. he has dealt with them justly in his son yeah and amen that that was his mission amen. Right? dude i say it the, the way that amen. i the way that i put it is the lawmaker became the law keeper to die for us lawbreakers. Amen, dude. Well, thank you so much, man, for joining us. Yeah, Absolutely. thanks for having me, guys.